This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, this is uh, this is the podcast, everybody. Welcome back to This Is Not Church, the podcast with the most... No, I've tried this once yeah. before, <laughs> and the only possible rhyme is inappropriate. So, This Is Not Church is what we've called this, because if it was church, you would have left by now. We're glad that you stuck around. John and I are, are here. I'm Nat, my brother John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. Today with us, we have Bethany Shea. Uh, I'm going to read you a quick bio, and then we're going to jump into an awesome conversation. But Bethany grew up in a Christian family, and she met Jason in college at Hume Lake. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. For all I know, it could have been like Hume or something. (laughs) (laughs) Where the heck is Hume Lake? It's uh, in the hills above Fresno. Oh, okay. Okay. So Hume... See, that's that's, people don't realize how big California is. You can live there your whole life and be like, where the hell is that place? Hume Lake. Okay, cool. So they married in 2001 and they helped plant Catalyst in 2006. Uh, It was during that time she discovered her love for preaching and teaching the Word of God while discipling those Jesus keeps bringing her way. She's a mom to Isaac, Emily, and Antonio. She's an avid runner, is a foster and adoptive parent, loves Jesus and people, and enjoys spending time at the river. She is currently working towards her Master's of Divinity at Claremont School of Theology. She has a couple of books out, one called Stepping into Advent, the other called Stepping into Lent. The third one I'll let you, I'll let her tell you about. Um, I think it might be the most interesting of the three. And she is a local pastor in Arcata, California, right? Yeah, Arcata. So yeah, so so if you are not aware of Arcata, California, first of all, you're missing out on one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the wonders of, of, the, of the planet. It is a true time warp. Really? I mean, like you walk into Arcata and you just like instantly like transported back to like 1968, 60, when, when was the summer of love? I mean, it's just like 68. <laughs> so it's like, boom, you're right there. I love Arcata. John and I grew up in Eureka, which is not too far from I mean, a few miles down the road. So that's kind of how we got connected up with Bethany. But that's what we have for you. Welcome, Bethany. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's really fun to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, the, well, we'll see about that. We'll see. <laughs> it always so starts far. out fun. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But um, just the story of how we actually kind of got connected is we have mutual friends in, in Eureka. As we, we've mentioned once or twice, John and I grew up in Humboldt County. John's still there. I am in exile in Texas. So, you know, a bit of a fish out of water story there, but uh, it's cool that we still have, you know, we still have ties in the area and we have mutual friends there. So uh, what brought you to Humboldt County? Was it to plant the church called Catalyst? I guess is what what that's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my husband and I were going to school in Southern California at a college called Vanguard University. 
And we met uh, another couple that were living, that were from Fortuna, which is also in Humboldt County. And throughout our conversations with them and our relationship with them, we all decided to come up to this area to start a church. And we looked at the area, we're like, why would we start a church in Humboldt? Like, what's the point of starting another church? There's churches everywhere. But we really felt like the college campus was kind of getting neglected a little bit when it came to students who might be questioning their faith or wondering what it means to be Christian outside of their home life and youth group life. And so we just really felt like Arcata was where we were supposed to start a church. And I I grew up Baptist. I grew up um, really conservative where women weren't even allowed to pray in church. So I came up in the mindset of a good supportive wife, a pastor's wife. And I was going to be the best pastor's wife ever. And then over the course of a few years, and after I preached a few sermons, I was just like, oh man, this is like, I I feel like I'm supposed to be a pastor. And that was really hard for me to accept. It felt like, like, why is God letting me do something that I was never allowed to do? Or why would God give me this desire in my heart for something that I was never allowed to pursue? Um, Yeah. But I just kept pursuing it because it was it just was the right thing. I knew it in my bones. So that's what brought us up here. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's uh, it's interesting because uh, you know John and I were both also raised in pretty conservative Christian movements. I guess you'd call them not quite denominations, but sort of, mm. um, mm-hmm. but certainly conservative. And, and it never crossed my mind that that women could be pastors, you know, that was always a weird right. thing, you know, and my, and so my wife and I met in high school, and got married, we both raised that way, both of us, it just never crossed our minds. And then years and years later, I got connected with a bunch of people who were Methodists, and lo and behold, the entire freaking Methodist church ordains women, <laughs> and have forever. And so yep. it, it caused me uh, a great deal of consternation. I had to go do some digging and find out, okay, the an entire, and they weren't the only ones, obviously the Episcopalians were doing it and others were as well. But, and then it was weird to find out that the, 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 the sort of pseudo denomination that John and I spent a lot of time in, Foursquare, was started by a woman. And they, st- and, they, and I think Foursquare will ordain women, but I think almost always in conjunction with ordaining their husbands. So there's always this sort of like, well, it, a woman can be a pastor as long as she's kind of a co-pastor. So it's right, sort of right, a backhanded right. complementarian bullshit thing, right? Um, right. Even though Amy, Amy Simple McPherson goes around, you know, in the 20s and just evangelizes and does her thing. And anyway, so just a very strange thing to, to, to sort of to sort of reckon with, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember asking somebody, maybe you had this question too, but I remember asking somebody at some point, I'm like, why would God disqualify half of the population from, from doing this kind of, of work? And no one really ever had a satisfactory answer to that. You know, it just, it was, well, just because Paul said so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm actually, I've been preaching a a series for a long time on Romans. And what I love about the book of Romans is how Paul isn't the one that took the letter to Rome. He sent it on with this woman named Phoebe. And so he had to train Phoebe out of everybody else that he could have chosen. He could have chosen Silas or whoever else, Barnabas, uh, to be the bearer and reader of this letter. But he chose this pagan woman who was a Christian at that point, a Gentile, to read this letter to those churches. And so he had to train her to embody his voice and his mannerism and what he wanted to convey uh, for him. And so it's just, even though like I grew up thinking, especially in high school, that Paul was some sort of male chauvinist pig that I didn't want to have anything to do with whatsoever. 
I'm, I'm rediscovering Paul from the mindset of somebody who is probably very feministic in many ways, like really wanting to see that part of society that had been silenced to have a voice. And he empowered that. Well, a lot of, a lot of damage gets done to Paul in translation. And we know that, that Paul mentions women by name who then subsequently they had their names changed. You right, know, like so Junia. we have Junia to Junia. Yeah. And, and, and then we also have the, the downgrading of Phoebe's title, right. um, which is pastor, essentially, or deacon to something minor, servant or helper. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. And so that we, see that, we see that there's an agenda at times at play when, when Bible translators come around. But one of the most fascinating conversations John and I had was with, uh, with Douglas Campbell. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Douglas's work, but um, so so Douglas is one of the he's probably the preeminent new scholar on Paul, which he would he would you might call it the apocalyptic reading of Paul, and so and this has a lot to do with with the use of Rome, uh, in particular Romans and Galatians, um, where Paul uses a great deal of diatribe, and and so a lot of times um, when you flatten out those letters. And you just simply read them all in Paul's voice. You get this contradictory nature of of Paul saying things that don't sound like Paul. In some places, he's very liberation minded. In some places, he doesn't give a rip if you're a man or a woman or a, you know free or slave or gentile, or whatever. And then other places, he sounds like he's very, very you know he's very anti woman. And so Paul or Douglas would would come along and say, well. When those things are happening, are we cons- are we convinced that's the voice of Paul, or is he or is he quoting the voice of a false teacher that he then refutes? And so oh, there's this entire yeah. dialogue happening that you miss when you flatten the text out. It's interesting if you ever get if you really really want to read like uh, like the treatise on it. There's a book called um, Deliverance of God, is what it's called, and it's like a thousand page bookstop you know doorstop of a book, right? And it's very academic and difficult. He's written a couple others that are much more accessible, but anyway. So anyway, all of that was a ramble to say, I feel like Paul gets a bad rap because I think people read into Paul what they want to hear, emphasize the things that they want to see, and then try to make excuses for when he sounds like a universalist. There's a word, right, that uh, that, they, that means what he was doing, right? The, the well, two voices. is, is prosopopoia. Right. And that's the persona, that's a, that's, a, that's a Greek rhetorical device where you personify you per, you personify something like like love, and you and you give it a voice, right? You can use that. The, the Greeks use it all through their all through their writings. Douglas would contend that Paul uses that to personify the voice of an abstract, you know, like an amalgam of a false, not 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 necessarily a specific false teacher, but embodying the false teachings that are going around in Rome and Jerusalem at the time, and sort of giving them all a voice of this one false teacher, and so you're. you're it brought it brought it to mind because when you talk about Phoebe being sent as one of the people who read the letters, Douglas would contend also that it wasn't it wasn't just that she read the letters; she's acting the letter out. That she's going to actually be giving voice to the false teacher, and so to the people in the hearing audience in the first century, most of this would just be, "Well, duh, yeah, we know that that wasn't Paul saying that. He was saying, "What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning?" And he comes in and says, "By by no means, absolutely not. We should because this is this." And so he goes to all kinds of detail about, you know, Paul does about justification being for the Jew first and then the Gentile, and then follows that up with, but all that means nothing, right? Right, right, right. Are those his words or is he echoing the voice of the Jerusalem-centric teachers who are always on about their status? Okay, yeah, salvation's for everybody, but it's for us first. So lots of stuff to 
dig into, but I love it. Going back to just this idea that you, uh, that you felt that you were called to preach, um, were you still within some kind of conservative church as this was, as this like, I don't want to call it mission, but as this was what you felt you were being called to do? And what kind of pushback did you get? By that point, I was already at Catalyst. We'd already started the church. So it was about, I think it was the first year that we started that I preached my first sermon. And I allowed that to be what it was. And I think I preached maybe four times a year for the first few years. And then our main teaching pastor moved away and I kind of stepped into that role and became the main teaching pastor. And this was about 10 years ago, I think. Uh, and then I, and then the leadership team wanted to make me a pastor, like give me that title. And that wasn't something that I necessarily wanted for myself. Like I loved preaching and I loved all the things that came with being a pastoral person, but I've, I've had a hard time with titles. I feel like titles separate people from each other. And, and I don't, I, I really don't like that at all. It, a title is helpful when you're going to marry somebody or whatever, but I don't know. I yeah, I don't like you. I don't like anything that separates people. Um, and even though I'm the main teaching pastor, all of this, almost every sermon or message or talk that we give is very communal. So I'll do a lot of prep work and everything like that. But there's a lot of guiding questions that I'll ask, and we just keep it super conversational. So everybody in the church has a voice and has an opinion that matters, and their opinion might not be orthodox or might not fit whatever picture that some people would think Christianity needs to look like, but that doesn't matter. They, they still, their voice still matters in our church. And sometimes, I mean, it works out most of the time. Sometimes there's some like weird comments that happen here and there that I have to try to figure out what to do with. But for the most part, it's just, it's really, really neat because everybody gets to, everybody's voice matters and they all value, are, are all valued. So it's pretty cool for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's kind of the place where where I'm at right now too is this like I I have this love-hate relationship with church. I've been in church my whole life. I've been a part of church my whole life. I've been in ministry my seems like my whole life. Um and then my wife and I planted a church about 3 years ago um that we recently just closed. And part of that rationale for us was we were just like I'm I'm just not sure where I am anymore when it comes to this institution and if it can be done well and if it can be done, again, that those are questions, not statements. I'm not saying it can't be done well. I'm just saying from my perspective, it's gotten, it's gotten problematic. And I don't know, having gone through deconstruction, um, that, that seems to be something that is fairly, fairly common that people are going through. So let, can we walk through some of that? Did you go through any of that deconstructive process? If, 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 if so, what kinds of things were you, you know, looking to deconstruct or, or, or did those things just kind of fall in your lap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the main thing that helped me deconstruct was just the going from complementarian to egalitarian when it came to our relationship as a married couple. I was, when we first moved here, I was still very complementarian in my mindset. My husband was not. He is, has been in the mindset that we're, that both voices are just as equal as the other in a relationship. And that's how he believes God has always seen it to be. And he didn't even know that, that I was somebody who uh, was looking for his leadership and headship in our house. And, and I was reading this, this book by, let's see, this was just like a year into being here. So like 15 years ago or something, I was reading this book by 
remember the, that book by the, the pearls um, created to be his help meet? Oh, oh, it was, it's just, it's just horrible. Um, <laughs> anyway, First of all, they use the word help meet. I in know, a isn't that come, gross? Come it's on. so gross. It just, it tr- that triggers me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I'm reading this book and, and I'm like getting more and more irritated that my husband isn't the spiritual head that he's supposed to be. And that's what this book is really like showing. It's not so much of like, what is the perfect marriage? It's more just like for where women are looking at their husbands to rescue them or to guide them. Like we don't have to be accountable for our own faith and our own experiences. Our husbands are the ones that are the ones that are held accountable. And so I'm reading this book and getting more and more irritated by this lack of leadership in my husband's life. And, um, and, and I like gave him the book. And I'm like, can you please read this? I need you to read this. And he starts reading it and he's like, this is really bad theology. And I was like, what? He's like, this is horrible theology. And then, so then I go into this place like, oh, please teach me. What do you mean by this bad theology? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so, Ironic. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> anyway, so that was like the start of some of that deconstruction. Um, I was, I was raised homeschooled. I was very creationist movements, um, Ken Ham, all the things. So, so it was like ingrained deep within me. Um, and I felt like my faith was kind of put together like a house of cards. And if I pulled one card out, I was really afraid to see what would happen with the rest of them. And so it was one of those things where I, I had to take my time in getting there. But while I was going along, it felt like there was nothing better in my life to do. Like I, it felt so, I felt safe. And I think part of the reasons I felt safe was because we were part of this church that was um, full of people that were also deconstructing and reading a lot of Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and um, heretics, all the heretics, (laughs) the best kinds. Uh, And I attended this uh, conference at that time by a Methodist person called, um, it was called Big Tent Christianity. Uh, and Rachel Held Evans was there and Brian McLaren, oh, wow. Marcus Borg, Nadia Boltzweber, all I, these really dang. incredible people. Yeah. Um, this was years ago. Um, and, and it was, it was such an important place for me to be in because I was able to see these women who were strong and capable preachers and teachers that weren't relying on their husband's covering in order to speak out the truth of the gospel. And, and I was really impacted by that in that moment. And I was impacted by the Methodists in that space as well. And so a few years later, my husband and I uh, became Methodist pastors. So we pastor two different churches. We pastor this non-denominational church plant that's about 60 people or so. And then we pastor a United Methodist small little parish in Arcata as well. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So it's, it's very different congregations and very different... DNA and structures, but um, really sweet communities. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's amazing. You mentioned some names there that we have uh, we've had the pleasure of having on the show. Uh, yeah. Brian's, a, Brian's a great dude. We've we've had him on. The closest, obviously, uh, we lost Rachel, but um, her really good friend and the 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 guy who actually finished her 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 last book. Um, yeah, Jeff, Jeff Chu. Chu was on was on a while back, and. Uh, just an, just an amazing guy. Um, but yeah, we've, those are, you start naming those names. Like, okay, those are all people who were key. For, absolutely. You know, absolutely. and we had this conversation with Brian at one point because we, you know, when I became aware of Brian, he was part of the emergent church. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
he had made some comments before that he felt like the emerging church had been a failure. And I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. I think it evolved. Yeah. I think it has, I think everything that we're calling deconstruction now has its roots in stuff that Brian McLaren was doing 20 years ago. You know, it, it's, it's, it's still asking the same kinds of questions that Brian had the audacity to ask in the mid, you know, mid nineties, you know, so him and I don't remember who Phyllis Tickle was, but Phyllis Tickle yeah, was there. Yeah. Um, obviously, Rob Bell was a youngster at the time. And there were all these all these people who were doing in, in a very, I guess, an unconventional way, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. Rob was probably the most conventional of all of them because he actually was just a pastor in a church. And, a, you know, he had the, you know, he had the misfortune of just getting really, he's just really good. And so he gets a lot of notice and a lot of attention. And, you know, when I was actually first coming up as a youth pastor, um, Rob Bell was the darling of even the evangelical world. They, we played his videos in youth groups and yeah, like, Numas. Everyone, yeah, Numa, everyone loves it. He's a little bit edgy, but not quite. I mean, he was totally edgy-ish. And then he had you know the temerity to write "Love Wins," and everybody just lost their fucking minds. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Because <laughs> you know, with you know, suggesting that God might just not have plans to torture everybody forever, and it was like no. Then why bother being a Christian? Yeah, what are we saved from if we're not saved from hell? (laughs) Right. So I don't know where you're where you stand theologically. I I would make some guesses, but that was a big one for me, and I think it was a big one for John. Yeah. When we started to question that reality, and started totally, you know, and I and I came to some pretty pretty humbling realizations about myself that I hadn't studied enough. You know that for the evangelical churches where I was raised. Christianity was born in the Reformation. And we weren't schooled on anything else. You know, we didn't understand first century church fathers and mothers. And um, we didn't, we weren't encouraged to read them or study them because, you know, Martin Luther had said all there was to say on the subject. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I don't know if that was, does that mirror any of your experiences as well? Did you sort of come in and go like, man, there's this big gap of knowledge that explains some of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that has been a very real thing for me, for sure, where I became more curious about God instead of, instead of confident in what I was handed as a young person. And as I, I think deconstruction has been really helpful. And I think it's really important work that I, I believe Jesus started <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. when, when Jesus Amen. says, you know, he said, you heard it said, but I tell you, he was deconstructing everybody's experience of their own understandings of the Torah and who God was. And I think when Jesus met that, that Canaanite woman, the, the Seraphonician woman, and she said, you know, come heal my daughter. And he said, well, I'm not here to take care of you. You're, you know, the dogs. And he, she said, well, even the dogs get food from the master's table. And he said, wow, I've never seen such faith. I think that was like a deconstruction moment that Jesus experienced within himself, where Jesus had to come to this place of a new sort of conversion for himself when he was encountered by something and disrupted by something that wasn't on the trajectory that the father had given him. I think deconstruction is one of the most faithful thing that we can do as people. But I also can see that it becomes incredibly trendy. It uh, it can be something that is sexy or insider language. It can become its own prideful movement in many ways. And I and you know I think that we're supposed to deconstruct, but I think it's we're for myself what I've seen and what I've experienced is that it needs to be happen in the context of community, where there's people that will, you know call us out on our shit when we start to like 
say things that are really inappropriate or when we start to believe that we're better than anybody else or when we start to think that um, that the way that we see the world and the way that we see God is better or more right or more true than than our conservative brothers and sisters. Um, I yeah, I think I, I think as people we see the world in like, a very binary way. We've got right and wrong. We've got mm-hmm. left and right. We've got good and bad. And what deconstruction does is it removes those binaries and real and recognizes that God is so beyond these fences that we've put up to protect ourselves from from too much truth. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say that the, the moment one of the moments for me when I realized that my deconstruction was maybe not as healthy as it should be was when I would look back at people. And I'm like, well, look how stupid they are. Look how dumb they are. <laughs> Why don't they just get and, it, John? And, and, and what I had to remind myself is, I mean, in some instances, maybe le- you know, less than three months ago, that's where I was. You know, or a year ago, or two years ago, or 10 years ago. I was like, yeah, I wasn't given grace by some of the people that I left, but that doesn't give me the right to also not give grace to the people who who are coming out of whatever whatever theology that they're trying to work through. And so there's there's that moment where you're like, yeah, I'm an asshole too. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, called, the, I'm, it's called yeah. the great asshole awakening. Yeah, I was like, but but I'm a uh, you know in air quotes, I'm a woke asshole. So I have the right to say what I want to Man, say. Man, no bigger asshole people. than a woke at. Okay, yeah, they're, they're yeah. the worst kind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but don't you think, John, and you know, Bethany's? I mean, don't, don't you? That's the danger of any quote-unquote movement, isn't it? Um, I experienced this when I was like, man, head like I dove headfirst into the grace thing, um, mm. and it was so liberating for me. Yeah, I needed it. You know what I mean? I don't look back on those days and go, "What the hell was?" No, I needed that. It needed. It. It, it was the necessary. Um, break with legalism that had to happen. Yeah, yeah. Reading a lot of Tillich will get you there for sure. Yeah, yeah, oh man, <laughs> for sure. But then there was a lot of self-righteousness and pride and not a lot of grace inside that grace movement for anybody who didn't see things that way. And so, and and for those, you know, it was it came from both sides. It was those who challenged us as, you know, heretics for the hyper-grace stuff, which they labeled us. Um, and then it was, it was, a lack of grace on those people who had gone to a certain place and then stopped, you know, and I, I remember getting, I mean, I've been booted out of every grace group I've ever been in now because, you know, they go so far, their grace goes to here. And then I was getting upset because, you know, well, yeah, but you're still not challenging some of these fundamental concepts. You have this really, really gracious view of, of God, um, but you still subscribe to penal substitution. You still think that God's sending his enemies to hell, even though Jesus said to love them. You still think that the rapture is coming and that you should be squeezing a 10% tithe from all your people. Um, Joseph Prince, I'm looking at you. <laughs> so there was like all of this grace talk and it was really, really, you know, it was good and it was encouraging. And then I started to dig a little deeper. And so, but anyway, I, I just found myself very easily entrapped by the lack of grace myself and say, well, how, how come you're still there? Rather than, understand that everyone is on their own journey. Everyone's taking their own path. And I, you know, I have really good friends who are inside of deeply, deeply fundamentalist movements and that's okay. I, I pray for them. Thoughts and prayers for them. Oh, they let me know all the time. I haven't given up on you, man. We're, we're going to bring you back. There's no going back, man. <laughs> but I mean, we've said this before, right? Anytime something becomes a movement, 
uh, and it's that they feel the need to camp there, right? So this is, this is where they're going to be. This is the, this is the hill. They are, they, they, the, the, the universal they, uh, that this group is willing to die for or die on. This is the hill they're going to die on. And so I think Nat and I have said this too. It's like, as soon as we, as soon as we see the first, uh, you know, first church of deconstruction, we're like, okay, we're out. We're looking problem. for the next thing, yeah. man. Yeah, I'm out. Right, right. Come on down to the first church of deconstruction. Well, I think we, we tend to bro- to paint things like that with a broad brush. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's any any group we do that with. And I don't know, I just, I think that there's more to what God is calling us into, I think, as people than than broadly painting people. I think that when we when we take away those huge pictures of like the church of deconstruction or the church of fundamentalism or whatever it is that we see. And we like kind of sift through the wreckage because there's so much wreckage there. And then we see flesh and blood people who have real experiences in their real lives and it affects them in in real ways. And I think what we see, what I see through scripture is Jesus was always one who wanted to connect with the humanity in somebody, not so much of like the broadness of people, but like those human parts of them. I think the Pharisees would be the only example of Jesus kind of broadly painting over them, like, you know, kind of shoving all of them in the same camp besides Nicodemus and a couple others that kind of tried to get out of that camp. But, um, which is interesting. It's like the religious, the hyper-religious are the ones that are, are broadly painted, I think, from Jesus's point of view. Well, and even in those instances, um, what I always sort of take away from that is that Jesus calls out a mindset. You never hear him. You never hear him call out, you know, a specific Pharisee. You know, it's it's just you. And I, and I think and I, and I have friends who are scholars and talk about first, you know, Second Temple Judaism, first century Judaism, quite a bit. And for a lot of them, they're like, man, you got you guys have got a lot of this stuff wrong because we all lump everybody who was Jewish and and you know maybe you know part of that group. We we call them all Pharisees. Well, Jesus was calling out a specific. I think, um, a very specific sect and saying, and again, I, I really think he's calling out mindsets. And that's, that's kind of been my, I guess it's, it's become like the line in the sand I won't cross. You know what I mean? I, I don't call out individuals typically, but I don't have any problem critiquing a mindset. You know, if this thing you're promoting happens to be harmful to human beings, I got a problem with it. You know, if this, if if your stance on our LGBTQIA plus friends and family is causing them to self harm and commit suicide at an astronomical rate, if your if your marginalization of them pushes them to the side and makes them feel less than simply because they don't fit squarely inside your boxes, I have a problem with that. You know, and I and I really believe Jesus would too. And so that's kind of where I, I, you know, I might, um, in my book, I, I, I think I've called out a couple. If you're famous enough, you get called out. You know, that's just the way it goes. You know, the Jolo things of the world can, ha- of the world can handle it. They're not bothered by me dropping a dime on them. But the guy at the church down the street from me, I'm not, you know, I'm not calling him up by name. You know, I'm calling out a, a mindset and ideology, something that I think is, that I think is harmful. So that for me is, is, is important when we talk about deconstruction because we're, we want to stay focused, I think, on, 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 on ideas, right? I mean, I'm not here to critique people personally, but if you're spewing hatred from your pulpit, you, someone needs to call you out for that, right? All right, that's my soapbox, John. <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, kind of jump off from that. I mean, and I'm not going to name names either, but um, if I had named names, you know, from some of the churches that I went to locally and I decided to put them on blast, um, 
I would not then have people who were in that church who have now come to me and said, Hey, actually, I've been listening to your podcast. I've been, I've been seeing your posts and you, you're helping me through some stuff. And I'm like, well, that's great. I mean, let's, let's talk. Let's chat. Let's have a conversation. But if I had put them on blast or their pastor on blast at that time, I, I would have completely closed off that venue, right? That option to have these conversations with people who are on their own journey. And are on a different, uh, different path than me, but maybe we meet somewhere. And at that point where we meet, we can have these conversations. And if I had, if I had burned those bridges or, you know, knocked down those, those connections, they would have felt like they couldn't have talked to me. So in a position of, of maybe having a coming to a place of deconstruction and not knowing where to turn. Because the one guy they thought maybe that he could answer a question, well, he's kind of a dick. I'm not going to go talk to him. Right, um, right. Because he puts all these people on blast, and it, what happens if right. I don't like what he says? He's going to put me on blast, or too. he's arrogant, or he's whatever. Yeah, right. So I have a question about about your books that you wrote because I don't know if this, and I'm I'm going to make assumptions about your experience being sort of fundamentalist or more conservative. Right? Was it your experience that that things like Lent and Advent weren't really talked about much? They certainly weren't talked about in the Protestant churches that I went to because that was a Catholic thing. And damn it, we weren't Catholic. We were, oh, we were so, we were so not Catholic. We weren't even sure those guys were saved. So my discovery of Lent and Advent and sort of that liturgical calendar was like revelatory for me. And I was in my 40s, for God's sakes. So I don't, I don't know, was that sort of your experience or did you sort of rediscover this or had this been part of your life the whole time? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, Advent was slightly a part of my life uh, growing up in the Baptist church I grew up in just because on Sundays they'd have a family come up and light the Advent candle uh, leading up to Christmas. Yeah, yeah. That That would have been too Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) That was was sweet. Yeah. Oh, next thing you know, you're kissing the Pope's ring. We can't do oh, that. Geez. Oh, dear. Um, and then Lent was something that came out later. I had I had never heard of Lent before. Uh, and I think the first time I ever heard about Lent was maybe 14, 14 or 15 years ago. Uh, actually, Rob Bell started doing that at Mars Hill. Yeah. And we were following some of the things that he was doing. And my husband and I were just like, we need to... We need to do something for Lent. And Rob had like a Lent calendar that he was following or, or utilizing for his church. And so we just borrowed their, their Lent calendar, uh, which every day there was a different scripture and then like some sort of practice, like um, cutting up two of your credit cards for one day or uh, sweeping the corners of your house in a meditative state. So things that were challenging in some areas and easier on some areas, but inviting inviting people to pay attention to the difficulty, the, um, the invitation to strip away all the excess during a season that leads up to Easter. So it's been really a powerful experience for my family and I for Lent. And usually we try to give up, we try to give up something altogether. So it's not just this individual thing that we're doing as, you know, personal, but it's something that we do as a family. Uh, one year we, gave up buying groceries for those 40 days. And that was not easy. Uh, we had we had chickens at the time, so at least we had eggs. And we just ate down our pantry. And then um, we saved the money that we would have used on groceries. And we're able to like do a big pizza party for some... Um, for the homeless community here in Arcata. Uh, and so that was, that was something that was 
challenging for us as a family just throughout the 40 days, but then challenging for us moving forward to build our pantry back up with the money that we didn't save because we used it elsewhere. Uh, and so those sorts of things have been helpful for, no, I shouldn't say helpful, have been irritating for our kids. Um, and that's been, that's had its own sorts of challenges and difficulties. And, and I would say even that just to even go beyond that, having teenagers who have pa- parents as pastors has been really hard as well because of having to go to church or being made to go to church. And that's not something that we are, we aren't those sorts of pastors or parents. So our kids, our kids usually don't go to church. And when they do, uh, it's because we're bribing them with lunch afterwards. So <laughs> if you go to church, then you, then we'll take you out to lunch. Um, but then every Sunday we also go on a hike. And so we give them the option. They can either come to church and get lunch or stay home and we'll pick them up and they'll, t- and they'll go on the hike with right, the church right. family. So yeah. That's, that's funny because my wife and I did that with our kids, um, mm-hmm. when they became teenagers and it was a little harder. We, we felt like giving them some, some, some room, you know? Yeah. And we were pastor. I was a pastor at the time and I started really feeling that, that, that same thing. Like, I don't, I don't like making my kids come to church. You right. know, just because dad's right. the pastor, there was this expectation that he would be there or that they would be there and be these dutiful children. And, um, so we, but we did, we did make that rule. You, we're going to church. We're going to lunch after after church every Sunday. You can come. But, <laughs> you can come. But I'm not coming to get you. Yeah. So yeah. we're in the car with us, and then we're going to Olive Garden, <laughs> or you're eating ramen at home, and we'll pick you up for whatever we do afterwards. They weren't excluded from the rest of the day. Right. Right. But there had to be some benefit to the kid who got up early and came with us. I mean, that kid's getting right. taken out to lunch. The rest of you guys can right. fend for yourselves. Right. You make adult choices. You suffer adult consequences. That's just the way this goes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. I think my kids would tell you that being being the children of a pastor sucks. Yeah. It's hard. You know, and I don't you know, I was so consumed with what I was doing at the time, I just sort of made these assumptions that they wanted to be along for the ride. And there's a point in their life when they're like, We don't even want to drive by the church building. You're there like five days a week it triggered them just to walk into a church because it just, it just brought up all this stuff. And I'm like, so yeah, I mean, I've got four kids. They're all grown. They're all most married or, or with significant others. And most of them don't go to church. I mean, my, my old, my oldest son and his wife do. The others have just kind of given up on the whole thing. They're not hostile towards it. That just doesn't have, and it's weird. I think that's part of that, that evolution that I think if we start thinking about where the church is going in the 21st century, I think we have to find ways to reckon with the fact that for most people, um, they can take or leave it. And we can't, we can't kind of get them back with the same old thinking that we used to do, which was, you need this. Like, if you don't have this, you're not, you, you, you know, you're not a good Christian or you're going to hell. We have to actually find some ways to promote what kind of good church can do. Because um, I'm a firm believer in community. I'm a firm believer um, that we are better together. But I'm also a firm believer that that doesn't have to take a specific shape. It doesn't necessarily have to be in a in this space that I once called church. So I don't know. This just feels like that's the kind of the direction that we're moving in some ways. And I think COVID really brought that into sharp focus, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. It's it's had it's made pastors and denominations and just churches in general have to rethink what's important and why do we gather in the first place? And is this something that we want to continue forth doing in the ways that we've been doing it? And a lot of people um, had to go back to the way things were just for their own comfort and sense of security. Uh, there's something really 
there was something really disarming or not disarming, really uncomfortable about uh, COVID disrupting all of those those normal patterns of our lives. And uh, there was something comforting about coming back to something that felt very familiar in the same ways as they once were. So, um, you know, for one of our churches, it's, it's the same as always. And then for, for Catalyst, we've really decided like, well, what, how do we want to move forward as a, as a church? And we, every, every summer we meet outside, we don't, we're not in the building. Um, we have a whole zoom community that's happening. Uh, we try to do as much stuff outside of gathering in a building as much as possible. We do like, you know, pizza nights and I don't know. It's, it's different. My, actually, this is something that's really interesting is uh, speaking of fundamentalism and, and what we've all experienced is um, I grew up in that whole movement where Dungeons and Dragons was like the satanic panic movement. You're opening a portal to a uh, demonic influence there. <laughs> Absolutely. And now my son, who does not like to go to church, will always use the church building on Tuesdays to host D&D gatherings with his friends. So I just, I, I love that, um, that the buildings, even if, uh, if people aren't coming for a church gathering can still experience the sense of community Um and maybe even the sense of peace within those building spaces, wh- whether or not the name of the Lord is ever mentioned. I think the name of the Lord is just embedded in the walls that there's enough of that that makes people feel like they belong somewhere. Yeah, I, 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 totally. I just had a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine on the phone today, actually. Uh, a friend of mine who recently moved to Montana, he uh, will randomly call me just to have these interesting conversations. And one of the, and I don't even know how we got on the topic. We got on the topic of music because that's kind of something we always talk about. And uh, I had made a comment that I was talking to a mutual friend about Guns N' Roses. The reason it came up was I remember when Appetite for Destruction came out, their first album, and you know, record stores were still a thing, and there was a line. Yeah, and there was a line that went. You know, it, anywhere there was a Tower Records, there was a line down the block and around the corner. And what he mentioned to me, and I didn't even think of this because I was just thinking about how crazy it was that people had to wait in line for for a record, which we don't have to do anymore. We could just download it instantly. But his comment was, "And we've lost that community. Mm. We've lost that moment where we stand in line with other people who are kind of like us and kind of not." And we chit and we have a conversation with them and we talk about things that we have in common and then they bring up things that we don't have in common. And that's how community works. And so I think if church is gonna work in the future, and I'm not sure it can. I mean, I'm I'm unchurched and I I think anyone who knows me knows that about me. Um, but it has to be a place where people feel safe, first and foremost. They don't feel like they're being quote unquote preached at. Uh, so they can, so the preacher or somebody can make another check mark as another soul saved. Yeah. And then they can move on to the next one, right? That they can be okay where they are and that where they are is perfect. That's where church has to, that's what, in my opinion, where church has to go. This place that no matter where you are in your journey, that you can walk into a building and you feel safe. And if you can't feel safe, get the hell out. Yeah, as fast no, as for possible. sure. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think, I think as humans, fundamentally, we are created for connection and created for community. And within our humanity, it's, it's very natural for us to find people that think like us and, and, um, vote like us and believe like us. And it's the most comfortable way of being. I think the church in its best state is a place where people who are not from those same understandings or walk of life gather together in a state of, you know, we have all these differences and all these opinions and all these beliefs that are not, that are not the same as each other. And yet we're willing to create them as secondary to the primary objective of, of, of relationship with each other and relationship with God. And that, that takes, that takes a lot of work. This is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something that's very, very challenging. I think it was Nadia Boltzweber who once said, um, I want to create a community where people who walk past our church look inside and they scratch their heads and wonder what the hell do these people have in common? Because that's the beauty of, of, uh, I, I think the beauty of the church, it's one where people are curious about, man, we've got nothing, nothing in common on paper. We should not get along. We should be fighting. We should be arguing. But the kingdom of God looks like something that's so opposite of what the world would expect. The world expects infighting. It expects um, tribalism. It expects uh, living into those binary ways. And I think God's kingdom looks like laying down our desires for... Uh, revenge or our desire for uh, being right all the time and placing those things to the side for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. I think for a lot of people that that looks like chaos. It does. <laughs> and sometimes it is chaos. That's the well, truth. That's, that's actually, uh, I'm, I'm there. I'm there for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember, I've had this, uh, I'm going to, my, my next, my next book, I'll tease my, my, I haven't even published the first one yet, but the, the second one, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm toying with, is going to be called disorganized religion. And I really want to toy with the idea of a, of a more chaotic faith. Because mm-hmm. um, I remember having these conversations when I was a young evangelical with people. And my line for them was, because this was always the line I got, was, well, I, I don't have a problem with God or religion. I just don't like organized religion, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, what, what, what do you, what, would you rather have disorganized religion? And that was like my gotcha. And now I'm like, yeah, yeah, I yeah. kind of want that. Yeah. Um, we had this really awesome conversation with, um, I'm not sure if you know who, um, C. Baxter Kruger is. So, so we had, we had, we're, we're friendly with him and we had this really good conversation that sadly we never got recorded because it all happened yeah. and we were just like getting to know each other, right? We're like, oh shit, push record. <laughs> but he had painted this picture. We got, we started talking about Celtic Christianity and how in, in the very, very early, in the very, very early parts of Christianity, as it's, as it's moving eastward, you know, it's moving into, or moving westward, I should say, but it's moving into places like, and make, having influence with the Celtic people, they adopted it and pulled it into their culture way before Rome got involved and screwed it up. And they had these very loosely connected, non-hierarchical church gatherings and he's explaining, he's describing these, these ruins that they've discovered in certain parts of, of and I won't try and tell you the country because I think Wales is somewhere where he was talking, but, um, where they had found these caverns and what they've now, what they have now figured out were, were church gatherings where they were, where they would meet in the round. 
and they would have these roundish sort of chambers where people would meet. There would it's like so as far as they were concerned, there was, nobody was ahead, nobody was the there was there wasn't somebody in charge. There was, there was this community of people who gathered around one common thing, and that common thing was Christ. And then we do what we do as human beings, and we impose structure. And along with structure comes hierarchy. Along with hierarchy comes, you know, imbalances of power and people who are at the top and at the bottom. And next thing you know, you have this this thing that like so closely resembles what Jesus came to rail against that I, 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 I'm shocked we haven't gotten, you know, punched in the face with the irony of it all. I mean, <laughs> really, this, this is what we envisioned that, God, you know, somehow God would, would, you know, that Jesus had come. And then the, res, the, the response to that was to build massive cathedrals and, <laughs> you know, these and then have these really, really highly stratified systems. So, man, maybe maybe the way forward is leaning more into the chaos and more into the disorganization of it all. I, I agree. I think, I think that that's like the beauty. I mean, you see what, how Jesus lived his life. It, it was fairly chaotic. It was, I mean, he just went here and there and he was available to people in need when they had a need. And I mean, he had, he had a very clear objective, of course, but when it came to the day in and day out structure of all that, it was very much based on relationship. And I think, um, but I think that some people need structure. They just do. And they need, they need someone to tell them what's right and wrong. And they need someone to give them exactly what they need to believe. Um, and, it, and it's really freaking scary to just allow things to be chaotic or to allow things not to be fully named. Uh, and we've had plenty of people leave our church because we don't provide enough structure. Like if you go on our website and you look at our statement of faith, which we don't really have, um, you know, we, we break it up into opinions, beliefs, and convictions. Uh, and this is just the way that we kind of structure our church where uh, the, the people at our church, they all have millions of different opinions and everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And we're not going to like fight about them. And, you know, if you want to let your kid see rated R movies when they're 13 years old and other people are like, we would never let even our adult children watch rated R movies, whatever. We're not going to fight about this. No big deal. That's an opinion. And then beliefs, beliefs are harder because there are so many beliefs out there that are really important to people. And if they aren't affirmed in their beliefs, then, then they feel like you're not living out the gospel very well or that you don't believe the right things or you're, you might be heretical. So, yeah. Ooh, um, you know, not creation versus evolution, all of those sorts of things that people have really clear foundations on. Even like women in ministry, I believe that those are beliefs. Those are those are lots of different. Lots of people have different ideas of all that, and we aren't gonna. We're not gonna like die on that hill on any of those things. But there are convictions that we have at our church that we are willing to like say. No, these are non-negotiables. You don't have to believe them, and you don't have to like say that these are the things that you believe. But these are the things that we that we will preach every Sunday without any kind of shame or not trying to convince you of anything, but just saying who it is. Like we just, we do believe that Jesus is the son of God and that um, we believe that, that God is a, a divine being of ultimate love, that every single person is loved and worthy of love and belonging. And, and sometimes those, those things are harder to define, but they're the things that will die over. Yeah. No, um, and it, yeah. it's interesting because you'll, you'll get people with very, you know, very detailed statements of faith. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you'll read through those and goes, there was not, there, there was not one mention of love. Like where, where that, shouldn't that have been the top of your list? 
when, when God chose to define himself, when Jesus said he was going to, you know, God is love. I, I don't, I, it, it's one of those things I get, you know, I, I, I'm in the world of, of, I'm, I'm in the buckle of the Bible belt. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? This is, this is West Texas. This is conservatives all get out. This is Trump land out here. Um, God, guns, and Jesus in that order. Um, I think Jesus actually gets trumped out by, pun not intended, gets trumped by guns quite a bit. I think it was intended. (laughs) It wasn't, but it it worked. And so when we were planting our church, we were like, we need to have, you know, somebody was like, we need to have a statement of faith. I'm like, I really, I, I don't like that idea. But if I was to have one, it would be, I believe in God. The Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and as I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, our Lord, who was conceived, you know, by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So I could, and what I used to tell people all the time in, in the church when we pastored was like, I'm like, listen, read the ancient creed or creeds. There's more than one, and find me the controversy. You know what I mean? Like there are things in there that you might not wholeheartedly agree, but I was, I would always tell them like, there's so much in these things, these statements of faith that is left out. Like they don't even touch on all of these things that you actually in like 21st century Christianity seem to be very hot button issues. There's not one mention of biblical inerrancy. There's not one mention of heaven or hell. There's not one mention of any sort of atonement theory. There's all these things that we've actually ended up having to deconstruct. The Apostles Creed doesn't even touch on that. It, it talks about, you know, anyway, so it, it's, it's interesting that... Um, that these statements of belief, though, I've, I've met far too many Christians who can who can recite them and who feel like they have correct doctrine and correct beliefs, and yet they they fail at the very basic level of just loving their neighbor. Yeah, well, the doctrine is more important than loving your neighbor. Yeah, and, that's, and that's then God help part. you if you push them to the next part, which is also love your enemies. Yeah, oh, <laughs> geez, Louise, that's a hard one. You, you know, or perhaps if you were to suggest that 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 Jesus, um, perhaps was a nonviolent person who preached nonviolence. Oh, you're never going to get my guns, you know. It's um, so good. But that, yeah, I get no more, I get so much more pushback on that, John. I could probably post tomorrow on Facebook that there's no such thing as hell and that everyone goes to heaven and la 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 candy land and get some pushback. If I preach that, if I, anytime I say something about the nonviolent nature of God, dude, people lose their ever loving minds. Because they they need God to be violent to justify, I think, their own violence in their own hearts. You know, well, they well, want, yeah, they want and, a God who hates people that they hate. Go ahead, that, that, that's the only way that you can have an atonement theory that they have. That the penal substitutionary atonement is one that is based on the violence of God. Right. And if if you don't believe in the violence of God, then then everything falls apart for well, a lot of people. And if you don't believe in the violence of God, if you don't believe in if if, if how else do you describe how else do you explain biblical inerrancy then? Because then every violent act that happens in the Old Testament that's ascribed to God must have actually been ascribed to God. So then God must be violent on some nature, on some level, right? So all of these, that, that was that, that was my experience was as you begin to peel back layers, some of those things are like you, you, you said a house of cards. Uh, yeah. Uh, or like a Jenga, you know, like, okay, I'm pulling at this one and I'm pulling at this one. At some point, the whole damn thing's going to have to crumble. And be yeah, rebuilt. And hallelujah, hallelujah! Thank when God. it does, all that, oh my gosh! Then the Bible say that everything can shake, that can shake will shake. Yes. So yeah. let it all shake. You know that was. Uh, I believe everyone's experience going into deconstruction um, is very unique, right? Mm-hmm. There are those mm-hmm. of us who are. Um, Brad Jersak called me a um, an arsonist. Okay, first of all, <laughs> I love Brad, and he's right. 
And I told him, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I did was spiritual arson. I burned it all to the ground and I did it deliberately. And I did not care, to be honest with you. I was so, I was so fed up. The cognitive dissonance was so great that I was willing to risk nihilism if that's what it took to get to the bottom of it and burn it all down. Um, I have known people who've been way more deliberate and way more meticulous in their approach. And that's their, and that's great. And that worked for them. Um, but for some of us, there's just this need to tear it all down, to be a little bit more like a vandal. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, I want to, I want to spray paint the walls. And, uh, and then, and, and again, it, what, I, what, I, what mystifies me are those people who get, who get upset with that as though the gospel and as though the kingdom of God is not strong enough to endure my kind of arson. If I can burn it down, it wasn't that good in the first place. It's like we have to protect God from us. Yeah. And I don't think that God ever needs protecting. I will say though, sometimes when we are deconstructing or, or burning it all down or whatever, there is a possibility of creating collateral damage to Absolutely. those that are not ready for that around us. And so when it comes to like loving people, loving our neighbors and even loving our enemies, those who are like really critical of our deconstruction, how do we love them in a way that doesn't cause them more harm, but can bring them a sense of... Um, of knowledge or curiosity of it as well. Because some people see this happen in us and instead of curiosity or wondering or anything, it's just like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. Right, that, looks, right. that looks too scary or painful. So how do we do it in a most loving way while also, while also recognizing that we can't always do it in a way that's always loving because we're just freaking done. Right. Done. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. done is done. I think John, I think what John did was, was, was very loving. Because John's going through this deconstructive process saying, I know I'm not the right guy for this place. And if I was to take this on, it would be disingenuous. Mm, so mm -hmm. I have to step away um, because I love the guy that I'm, that I'm serving. Um, I, we disagree, but it doesn't stop me loving him. And for me just to hang on for whatever, a position or a title or whatever would just be insincere, right? And I did, I did the same thing. I mean, I, I, out of a love for the people that I was serving, I'm like, I can't be here anymore because I cannot parrot and I can't parrot the party line. And rather than sit up here and just create strife and controversy and, you know, be, and don't get me wrong, I, I would love that. Um, all things being equal, I don't mind being the guy that drives a spoke in the wheel. <laughs> Except that the reality is there are human beings attached to all of that stuff who I don't necessarily need to see thrown over the handlebars as I'm just wreaking havoc. So I, I stepped away from that church that I was on staff at in large part because I needed to be true to myself and I needed to be respectful of the people who weren't in the same place I was. Does that make sense? I'm like that way I can, and I planted a church predicated solely on the fact that I was going to say what the hell I wanted to say and you could come along for the ride if you wanted to, <laughs> you know, and it blew up in my face. So yeah. that's how that worked. <laughs> By the way, I don't recommend that as a church planting strategy. Um, might have worked better in the Pacific Northwest. I don't think it probably, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, Humble County is actually pretty damn conservative. There are parts of us. There parts are parts of Humble that are There are yeah. way more, especially in the church world that I was in, and there's way more conservative churches than there are and I don't like oh, the labels absolutely. on it, but, but in the church, don't you find, I mean, John was like, well, where else would I go to church? I'm like, I don't have a freaking clue, dude. Totally. I, yeah, know, totally. Uh, I, I couldn't name a single affirming church in that I was aware of. The main, mainline churches. Mainline, so, so, some, okay, some so Lutheran and Methodist. Episcopal and, church probably would yeah. be affirming. Presbyterian. Um, Presbyterian. Um, as long as you get, not like, and like, 
the Lutheran, but not the ELCA, right? Not the no, the, uh, the ELCA, not the Missouri Synod. Okay, gotcha. Okay, the, the yep, way around. Yep. So Nat tells the story that you know when when I kind of came back to the faith, I, I I called him or texted him or something. It's like, oh, well, I need to find a church if I'm if I'm back in the faith. I, I got to find a church, and, and Nat's like, no, why? <laughs> why do you need that? No, you don't. It's like, well, is, isn't that the next step? He's like, not not necessarily. So, you know, and I, and I found a church that worked for me for a while. Yeah. Well, and, and, then, and, you know, and to be clear, I wasn't saying, no, don't go to church. I was saying, don't be in a rush. Like, don't hurry just because you feel like there's this, there's this compulsion that you have to. Because I knew as well as John does that nothing had really changed. He'd been gone. He'd left the church for 30 plus years. The church had not evolved, you know, 30 plus years in that time. There were still going to be the same issues he had issues with. And he had to be in a place where I feel like he could be like, listen, I can go here and be cool with it because I know who I am and I know what I believe and I don't have to, you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So um, um, I was more concerned that his his nascent faith would be crushed, you know, and, and you know, like, like he'd already been through this heartbreak once before. I'm and, like, and, I, and, yeah, and, you know? and to a point, and to a point it was, I mean, I mean, I, I did walk away a second time you know, and I don't know if I will ever step foot in a church again. Um, and yeah, I, well, would you, know, you agree, John? That I, I think this walk away was different. Like, I think the first, one, the first one was just a general "fuck you, I'm out." Like, well, like, yeah, I mean, it was on, it was on the end of that that missions trip, which I thought we really that we really bungled, and and that you know, and it, I keep you know I keep rehashing the stuff and that intervention that literally broke me. I mean, you were it, disillusioned it, with the whole damn thing. Oh yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, I. You know, there's again. We're going back into stories we were rehashing. You know, I was I was the six or seven year old kid asking the wrong questions in Sunday school, and the pastors talking to our parents and saying, "Can John not ask these questions?" And it was just, <laughs> it was just, it was just me going, "Well, wait." You know, like little weird questions, like you you realize that Adam and Eve were the first two people on the planet, and then they had kids, and their kids married somebody. Well, who do they marry? Because that's weird. And, the, 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 and there wasn't a Sunday school teacher prepared for those questions. They're still not prepared. They're like, well, right, right. They're like, well, <laughs> well, well, God provided in whatever way God provided, right? <laughs> and um, so I've always wanted to ask questions. I've always been in that place where I was like, I don't, if I don't get it, I want to know why. That's just where I've been. And so up to the point where I left the second time and I, w- I, was, I was pretty angry. This, this second time I left, I, I, angry, depressed, majorly depressed to the point where, and you know, I don't like calling out anybody specific, but you know, our, our dad knows that we've had this conversation. My dad's like, you're, you're really angry and you're really, you're really attacking the church in a really uh, kind of a mean way. And I'm like, I know I am. I'm doing it on purpose because I think if I don't, who does? For a season, that's what I felt I needed to do. So I was. Well, I think, I was I, yeah, we're supposed to be critical of of the church. I think the church has done some really horrific things, and right. we don't and name so, it. But I had to realize that my anger was being directed at, even though I wasn't naming specific people, they were specific people that I was angry with, right? And so they were they were stoking that fire, and that was not healthy. And so, I, like Nat, I'm okay with calling out bullshit where I see it. If it's just calling out, you know, specific dogma, theology, uh, the way a church is run, you know, where anywhere where the hatred is spoken as love, 
I have no problem, you know, going after the gray glocks of the world and just saying, you know, you're, you're a horrible human being. I and the way you, you just said gray glock. Is that different than a black glock? Yeah, you said gray glock. <laughs> but I heard the words gray and glock. I'm like, dude, God, uh, you're I calling out a gun manufacturer. <laughs> I will call out that gray glock son bitch in a heartbeat. <laughs> Yeah, but you're right. They, those guys put their names in the public square. They they describe they 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 get the scrutiny. That's fine, right? The Matt Chandlers of the world can handle it. But I mean, I I agree with both of you that uh, chaos sometimes is what is needed. I, and I, I I'm trying to figure out if if what we are calling chaos is truly chaos. You know what I mean? Well, this was the example I was going to give. So Nat and I have a cousin who recently passed away a few years ago, and uh, my parents our parents uh, opened up their house to be the place where we all collected to mourn. That, that gathering for those few days was chaos. There was, there was drinking, there was swearing, there was, you know, crying, there was loving, there was my parents being the conservative people that they are knew that this is what had to happen. So catharsis, Right. So some kind of, some kind of moving forward could happen and they could have easily shut it down. So this isn't appropriate at this moment. And instead, my parents was like, you know what? I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but this is what it feels like they need. And so in that chaos grew love. That's what I, that's what I mean when I say that the chaos needs sometimes is needed. It's not, it's not random just be crazy to be crazy. It's chaos in the moment because you're so willing to love whoever who comes in, in into your place. And yeah, sometimes it's going to be messy. Sometimes it's going to be a little crazy. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, but I know I'm accepted here in this craziness, in this, in, in my brokenness, in my sadness, in my unbelievingness, all of that. And I'm, I'm safe. I'm loved. I'm accepted. That's church. That's beautiful. That's such a good example of, of how healing is often born out of chaos. I mean, even like in the, in the beginning pages of scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of chaos and there's something very healing and, um, forward movement when we allow chaos to, to exist while peace also exists. It's like this weird paradox of life, peace and chaos coexisting together in a really unified way. Yeah. That, that, that just, to me, it just reeks of freedom, you know, and it's this idea that, um, you know, again, chaos is, chaos will be a word that, you know, some will ascribe certain feelings to and go, well, chaos for them means disorder and, you know, whatever. For me, it just means it, it's, it's the opposite of hyper, of something being hyper-structured. You know, and it's my, it's my attempt to, to regain some control over out from under a system that is very controlling. And so if the result of that is some chaos, then I think that's, I think that's healthy and I think it's good because the opposite of that is really unhealthy. Um, the uncontrolling love of God, like Thomas Ord talks about this, this whole idea that God does not control us, um, I think speaks to the need for some of that chaos to say, listen, we don't need to have everything figured out. You know, I don't need to have my doctrine. That, that was the one thing that, you know, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Peter Enns, but Peter Enns wrote a book. So Pete's going to, Pete's going to be on the show pretty soon, John. Oh, that's um, so, so cool. I love, we love Pete. I love that guy. Um, he's great. But he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty, which just blew my brain apart. 
because I was so, at that point in time, I needed it. And, and, I, and I needed it for the wrong reasons. You know, I didn't really need it, but I felt like I needed it because I felt so uncertain about so many other things that I felt like I could assert some control here. Um, and, and so people like Pete Enns come along, people like Richard Rohr come along who, who start to, you know, speak of this, you know, the sense of wonder and enchantment that go beyond the bounds of control and uncertainty. And that's what I'm reaching for when I say chaos. I'd like to find those moments inside of a church um, setting that did not have to be regimented and timed and structured, you know, down to, so yeah, that, that to me, I think is, is where we get it right. So awesome. The beauty of chaos, John. The beauty of chaos. All right. It is an hour and we've been talking for over an hour. It seems like yeah, we just started. Yeah. <laughs> this is what happens when you just have good conversations and uh, the whiskey's flowing, John. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But hey, um, sadly, we have another interview in a little bit, so we do have to be structured with our time. <laughs> That's a lot for you guys. My goodness. We got all kinds of, we're just going to make him wait because chaos. No. Um, but man, this has been great. Um, yeah. I, man, I cannot tell you. We, that, what a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you for thank you for for coming on the podcast and hanging out. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> don't you love the way I do this, John? This it's so it's so structured. I know it's so professional. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to do an entire interview like like uh, like like uh, Chris Farley, Chris Farley, um, and just be like, remember that time? Remember, remember, remember that one time <laughs> when you wrote that book? <laughs> that was awesome. all right before i say anything even dumber uh let's go ahead and sign off we love you we're going to link to all your stuff in the show notes make sure people can connect with you on the social medias if they want to if there's a way to do that um if your books are for sale someplace we're going to put you in touch by the way with publishers so get prepared to be famous i mean this is i think think. (laughs) all right hey listen when Kristen dumay came on our show we keep saying this she was not a new york times bestseller the week after her her episode came out Boom. New York Times bestseller. Well done, you guys. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you guys are powerful people. Because, because, <laughs> because, yeah, because everything that happened, it was, a, it was a causal relationship, right, John? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Nothing to do with her publishers, her marketing, her ability to write a really good book. Damn None of book. that. Damn, the book was good. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a great book. Oh, that was so a great good. book. <laughs> <laughs> but she would have never been heard of if, if the 300 people who watch our, who listen to our podcast yeah. said, That's right. That's right. Along. Good call. <laughs> yeah, we bumped it right over the edge. That's right. Kristen, you owe us your career. Um, uh, she's, yeah. she's listening. She's not listening. John, send us to her so we can get her back on. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, hey, they just translated her book into, uh, into Spanish. Wow. Which is awesome. Which is, That's which is Think about this, though. And this is just, just for shits and giggles. The title of the, of the book in Spanish, Jesus and John Wayne. I mean, yeah, this is, oh, yeah. it's Jesus. That's true. Jesus. Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the title was fully, you know, how, uh, yeah. uh, whatever, movement co opted, anyways, a corrupted a faith or whatever it was. But anyway, fantastic book. If you haven't bought that, go buy that one. Um, we love Kristen very, very much. Okay, we're going to stop now. Peace out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 
All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.